This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am delighted to be joined once again uh, by a guest who is a former United States Air Force medic and EMT. His academic achievements include a bachelor's degree in psychology from Park University and a Juris Doctor from Western Michigan. As well as this, he is a retired lawyer and former Assistant Attorney General. I'd like to welcome once more to the podcast author and researcher, Mr. Terry Lovelace. Terry, welcome back. Thanks, Andy. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Terry, it's uh, good to finally speak. This is something I tried to arrange back in October. We've both had uh, bouts of ill health in that time. We had the holiday period. Life gets in the way, but here we are, January 2024, finally getting to talk. And um, I want to acknowledge, Terry, I really appreciated after we first spoke, you reached out to me to say you'd had a wonderful response from listeners and viewers of this podcast, picking up copies of your book, yeah? Yes, I have. I've had a wonderful response. Uh, I have uh, a lot of people in Canada and the UK uh, have... uh, contacted me, bought books, read books, had questions. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a, a lot of people, more, more, than, uh, more than usual. It's always so, a good thing. And uh, I, I could see just from the response after the interview as well, how many folks enjoyed it. Uh, and when I said you were coming on the podcast now back in October, I got a whole lot of listener questions. Last time we spoke, I never even managed to get through half of the questions people sent in. So this time, I'm going to try my best to include everything that I've had through. And that includes those who followed up earlier this week as well. So thank you very much to everyone who's been in touch. And if I haven't got to it, I'll get Terry back on a third time and it'll just be listener questions. But we've got a whole lot to get through. Um, It's late in the evening here. I've got nothing else on tonight. Terry's sat down, ready to go. Um, So we're we're all yours for the next, hopefully, couple of hours. Briefly, though, Terry, some folks might be hearing you for the first time. They might not be aware of your story. I'll, of course, encourage folks to go back and listen to our interview from February 2023, where they'll hear the whole long-form piece around the incident at Devil's Den, where we cover your story in a lot more detail. But if you don't mind, for those who, who may not have heard it before, what's the abridged version of what happened to you back in 1977? Sure, I, I, I can do that. The long version is an hour and a half, but I can uh, put something together in about 10 minutes. Um, I was uh, on active duty in the United States Air Force from 1973, right after I got out of high school, to 1979. Uh, I was assigned to Whiteman Air Force Base, and I was there for the entire six years of my enlistment. I worked in an emergency room and worked with a guy uh, Toby, who was, you know, we worked together, we were friends, we were both newly married, our wives were friends, and, uh, you know, we, uh, we had, we had a, good, a good friendship, and uh, one night, and we, we worked the night shift, 11 to 8 a.m., uh, Toby comes to me and says, hey, man, I got an idea, let's go camping. And I knew I'd never been camping before in my life. I'm a city kid. I knew he was a city kid. And I'm like, where, where's this come from? And he said that he, uh, he got a uh, pamphlet from 
some guy who had been fishing someplace near Devil's Den. And he said it just really, uh, he really wants to go there. He, he, he was really kind of obsessed with this thing. Um, so we made the trip down there. We, we got some time off, made the six, six and a half hour drive down to uh, across the Missouri border into Arkansas and into Devil's Den. We dodged the ranger station because we didn't want to stay in the campground because my friend Toby was an amateur astronomer. He wanted to watch the night sky without light pollution. Well, you know, you can't do that if you're in a parking lot with cars and it doesn't make sense. So we went out to find our own spot and we trespassed across a fence and got to this elevated plateau. And that's where we camped that night. Um, and we were the only ones for miles. We were there by ourselves. Uh, it's a remote area, especially remote back then. It, it's still a remote area. And uh, we, were, we did all the fun stuff you do when you camp. We're sitting around the campfire, um, maybe eight, nine o'clock at night. And uh, I had this, um, I noticed that all the noises in the forest had stopped. It was dead quiet, suddenly. And I asked my friend, you know, like he's gonna know, but I asked him anyway, is, that, is this normal? It, Cause it unnerved me, it made me uh, uncomfortable. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. You know, the, the bugs, the frogs, the things that make noise, they'll be back. You know, we've just been loud and we've quieted them. Uh, and then uh, just minutes after that, he has his head turned to his left and I asked him, hey, what do you, I was about to ask him, hey, what are you looking at? And he asked me, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I knew there were no lights. There, was, you could, there, there were no lights visible from the top of that plateau, you know, that I could see. And he pointed, I couldn't see them at first because his torso was in the way. So I had to stand up and look. And there was a triangular shaped um, cluster of three stars right on the horizon. And, you know, we couldn't figure out what it was because it, it didn't look like an aircraft. It was too high off the ground, off the horizon to have been, you know, a, a train, a car, a, you know, it didn't fit. And while we watched it, it rotated like it was on an axis and started to go up into the air. And it reached what I would call a ceiling. I have no idea the height. But just based on the size of it, when we saw it up close to the size of what we saw, probably 10, 12,000 feet, um, leveled off and then did a glide plane uh, in our direction. And that triangle, where we just saw three state, three bright white lights in a, in a line because it, the apex of that triangle was pointed toward us. And we saw this thing came in and it, stopped over over our um, campground about 3,000 feet above above us in the air uh, absolutely silent and as big as a um, I usually say as big as a Walmart as big as a large shopping center it was huge it was enormous and uh, that's one of the things I never understood is how this thing couldn't have been seen in you know three counties um, but it wasn't uh, we uh, saw this thing 
from the underneath, it shot uh, a white light down toward our campground and that hit right in the middle of our fire. That was on just for a few seconds that turned off and then a, uh, a reddish, almost purple uh, laser then shot down from the middle of the thing and just kind of danced all over the campground. And I had the feeling that the thing was checking us out somehow. You know, the light struck me, it struck Toby's, my car, the cooler, you know, it struck everything that we brought, including us. And uh, we both, we both, and this is, this is uncharacteristic of us, you know, two people that witness something like this are normally like acknowledging it and, you know, uh, seeking validation. Hey, did you see what I saw? What is this thing? We should have been excited, but, but we weren't. And our emotions were muted and, and we were, uh, we were quiet and we, Toby stood up and said, show's over. And he went inside our tent and, uh, threw his air mattress in there, fell on top of it. And then I followed suit and did the same thing. And we woke up the next morning to this thing had descended from 3000 feet to about 30 feet over our campground. So it was right. We were, we were offset. So we weren't directly under the thing, but uh, yeah, it was, um, it was frightening because I, I, I woke up and my, my boots were unlaced and my socks were on sideways. And it, it didn't occur to me then that someone had undressed us and redressed us. And we had been taken aboard this thing. And I don't have and never have had a clear linear memory of everything that happened while we were in there, but I do have bits and pieces. Um, so that's, that's the story in a nutshell. Thanks for sharing that. And like I say, we've gone into that in, in lots of detail in the last, I wonder since we last spoke a year ago, has anything changed for you in views of your own story? Is there anything you've gone back on? And you must go back over it often and think, and I've done it with my own sightings that are nothing like yours, Terry, you know, nowhere near as complex or in depth or personal, but you think, did I see this? Or, you know, did I actually turn the way I thought it did? Could it have been something else? Is there any part of your experience that's came back that's changed or or something outside has influenced how you remember it? You know, there, I'm glad you asked that question because the, I have had kind of a change in mentality and my, my views toward this thing. I was certain in my mind's eye, uh, 1977, I was 22 years old. Uh, this thing came from space. I assumed it was uh, something from another planet, another universe, or I don't know, some, something from somewhere else, not native to Earth. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I, uh, I have some friends that work in, in uh, the intelligence community. And they tell me about uh, people being targeted individuals and about uh, um, just, some, just some crazy things. And, I, and I'm kind of second guessing myself now, wondering, did, did we see what we really thought we saw? I mean, I had somebody there who could validate my story. I could validate his. Hmm. Um, or could this have been some government entity? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Um, and I, I can't say, you know, where the thing came from. I don't know what their intentions were. 
other than to examine us physically. So, yeah, I'm having some second thoughts about, you know, maybe this was from some government entity, United States or otherwise. And, and that's understandable. It's an event that happened over 50 years ago. I think anything that happens, you know, 10, 20 years ago, 30 or more, you replay it, your mind changes, your brain changes things. And and it's not to say you're, anyone's making things up. I've used that analogy before. If someone asks me and my wife what happened on our wedding day, we're going to tell you a very similar story, but there'll be little details that are different. You know, who cut what first and who who spoke to who? And do you remember such and such spilled a drink? No, that was actually this person. And those little those little things happen just with the passage of time. But it's a very complex story. And please, folks, go back and listen to that. I think we're going to go back to it a little bit within the, the listener questions as well, Terry. What I'd love to do, though, is um, talk about the follow-up, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Now, that book was uh, 2020, I think, December 2020, it was released. And yes. It's a follow-up piece to uh, the incident at Devil's Den with some additional detail, uh, some follow-up on Toby, some more information added in, and also around 30 cases from thousands you mentioned when we spoke last time of people who had been in touch from all around the world telling you their own experiences, their own stories and the impact it's had on them. So I'd love to go into that. So let's go back first though to, to your own childhood because we never touched on this first time, I don't believe, um, and your own UFO experience from childhood. Yeah, we, we had not talked about that and, I, and I'd like to. Uh, that the book is called uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Um, was my second book. And I, uh, I talk about Devil's Den. I talk about um, my friend Toby and about how um, he fell into an abyss uh, of alcohol. Uh, and, you know, you go through something like we went through and something changes. We were, cha we were different people. I feel like we went down there like we were two kids, you know, and we were different people when we came back. And, you know, I had my struggles dealing with it, too, uh, in that I was uh, afraid to go to sleep at night because I had horrible nightmares uh, of being inside this thing and of entities and, and uh it was just hard to process. And uh, Toby, I think, started with, you know, having a uh, cocktail before bed. And then because our bodies have developed a tolerance to things, it became two and then three. And then uh, then he, that's a slippery slope. And then he was uh, um, plagued by the addiction to, to alcohol. And that... Uh, that I blame that for the destruction of his life more so than I do uh, the incident that we went through. Um, but I guess I can't blame anybody or anything. Uh, like I said, I know I had my struggles too, uh, but I, and I feel fortunate to have come out a whole person on the other end. Um, Toby and I, you know, it was kind of crazy after this event, we went back to the Air Force Base and it was dead silence in the car all the way, all the six hours drive back. 
Um, and the only conversation that we had was we made an agreement that we would never, never to, to anyone in the Air Force or anyone anywhere, press or a neighbor or friend or whoever, we would never tell the story and what happened. And the reason for that is, is simple. We were both stationed on a, a strategic air command base that was a nuclear base. It had nuclear armed B-52 bombers. It had uh, Minutemen missiles spread out all over the countryside. Um, and because of that, security was high. And, and they were really, really strict about who they let uh, work there. So I could have been, had, had we come out and told a superior this story, or had we told it to someone else who then retold it to a superior, had they got wind of it, um, we would have been sent for a psychological evaluation. And then after that, probably just uh, discharged from the Air Force. And I did not want that. Uh, I wanted to finish my enlistment so I could use my GI Bill to pay for a college education. That was kind of the object of the exercise. So, um, yeah, we made a pact not to not to talk about it. And something had changed in my relationship with this guy. You know, we worked together, we were friends. Um, and suddenly I had, I didn't want anything to do with the guy. And I, I can't reconcile that. I don't know where that came from. And uh, there's, a, there's a great book um, by Ray, Fow Ray Fowler, F-O-W-L-E-R, uh, written in 1976 called The Allagash Four. And it's about four guys that went on a, on a fishing trip in the, uh, in the state of Maine, in the middle of nowhere, uh, similar to like where we were. And uh, they were in a canoe on a lake and they saw a light come up and it lit up the inside of that aluminum canoe and their memory ends there. The next thing they recall is being back at their campsite. And, you know, uh, but these relationships between all these people changed. And I saw this in, in some of the uh, uh, stories that were sent to me by other people. It seems to be common in that um, something changes, like like in, in the Ray Fowler book, there are twins, very close, identical twins. Uh, they drifted apart. Uh, this, this band of four guys that used to be, uh, that y'all used to be best of friends, um, drifted apart and didn't associate anymore. Didn't, uh, uh, and, and I got a, a very, very similar story uh, from a guy from Texas who, uh, he was a fire a fireman, and he had like there were four other guys. Yeah, a total of five guys, and they used to hunt together, fish together, drink together. Uh, they did all this kind of stuff, and they went to a uh, they went on a uh, hunt for wild boar, and they all had you know high powered uh, AR-15 rifles. Uh, they were all prior military service, so they were comfortable with them. And they went down to this uh, uh, trailer, trailer house that uh, 
this guy, Billy, it's his family had it and they used it uh, for a hunting cabin. And they had, uh, they saw crazy lights in the sky and uh, a bunch of things happened. And one of the group disappeared. A guy they called Melvin, um, he was the oldest of the group. He was like 55 years old. He was near retiring from the fire department. Uh, and one minute he was in the house on a recliner asleep and the next minute, nobody can find the guy. So the guy that contacted me, his name was Garrett. Uh, he went to check, there was an outhouse. There was no plumbing, just uh, an outhouse to use as a washroom. And he can recall reaching out with his hand to take the door handle, to open the door to see if Melvin was in, in there. And he remembers the feel of the wood in his hands as he grabbed a hold of the handle. And then that's all he remembers. And then there's a period of missing time that he just can't account for. Um, then the following morning, everyone decides, let's, let's go back home. And it just, uh, you know, just went home three days early. And um, once Garrett explained, once they got back to the firehouse, things between them were never the same. Um, it was, it was, those relationships felt strained for some reason. And I think, um, I think that speaks to the power that these things, the influence that they can have over human beings. I, I really believe that. Uh, I got a bunch of emails from people who, uh, as, a, as a family, you know, they saw, um, you know, something in their backyard, they saw something in the sky that was, it was crazy and all of them witnessed it. And uh, afterward, nobody talks about it. Uh, it was one person told me that, yeah, we didn't, we didn't talk about it in family and, uh, you know, 10 years pass and at a, uh, like a Thanksgiving dinner, you know, Uncle Joe, every family's got an Uncle Joe, right? And Uncle Joe speaks up and says, hey, you remember when we were in the backyard and we saw that crazy thing in the sky? And he says, when he said that, everybody in the room was just stunned. Um, so, again, I think I think it speaks to the power that they these things can have over human beings. Um, and it's very, it's very common for people to, to drift apart. As a matter of fact, the Air Force, all of the armed forces in the United States, if two people have a sighting, two or more people, they bust those people up. Uh, and that's what they did with Toby. They shipped him and his wife to Japan, uh, you know, cut orders for him at light speed. Uh, they got me out of the hospital and I worked in a supply squadron for you know, eight weeks or so until he could get off base. And we were told to have no contact with each other. And I mean, we were very sternly told not to have contact. And warned that if we did have contact, you know, in writing, in person, by phone, through a proxy, it would, uh, there would be consequences. So 
I, uh, I want, it's, it's an odd thing to reconcile. I wanted nothing to do with this guy, um, but I wanted to say goodbye to him and his wife and uh, wish him well. Uh, you know, we worked together. I thought I owed him that. Um, so despite being ordered not to see him in person and I go over to his house, uh, coming home from the base grocery store one day, we lived on the base. Uh, I asked my wife to pull the car over. Toby lived just a few blocks from me in, in, in NCO housing. And I said, you know, I, I just want to say goodbye, Toby. And she says, you know, Terry, you've been warned not to, not to have any contact with this guy. Don't screw with these people. You know, I'm afraid of them. Uh, and I said, yeah, I am too. Um, that's why I'm, I'll be in there. I'll be back in the car in four minutes. So I ran up to his door, door I've been through a hundred times. I did like I always did. I knocked on the door, uh, opened the door and said, hey guys, it's me. And his wife walked by. I was in kind of like a vestibule and his wife walked by carrying a box or something they were packing. And uh, she said, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, I know, I know I'm not here to cause a problem. I just want to say goodbye to you guys and wish you well. Um, and she didn't reply to me, but Toby was in the bedroom and heard my exchange with uh, his wife, uh, Tammy. And he came around the corner in the hallway. And when I saw him, I was, I was stunned to see him because um, it was so out of character. I mean, I know the guy was in the process of making a move. And there's a lot of work to be done with that. Um, but he hadn't shaved. His hair was wonky. He, uh, uh, he, wore dirty, he was wearing dirty clothes. And uh, I didn't know what to say exactly. And he walked up to me and I stuck out my hand. He stuck out his and we kind of managed to shake hands. And I said, I just want to wish you well. Uh, and I said, it's been a pleasure to work with you. And he, he was much shorter than I am. Um, and he looked up at me um, with bloodshot eyes. And he asked me, he says, it happened, didn't it, Terry? It was real. And I said, yes, my brother, it was real. It happened. And then he asked me, but why us? And I said, man, I don't have a clue. And I... I ran out of the house, back to the car. I, you know, I thought this meeting would give me some kind of closure, some somehow, you know, complete the circle and make this make sense on some level. Uh, and it didn't, it was just anxiety. So I guess there's a reason um, why they bust people up. Can I ask, do you feel and over the last couple of months and years, there seems to be somewhat of a reduction in the stigma, even if a small amount within the military, whether that's the same across the Navy, the Air Force and different departments, I'm not too sure. But given what you went through back in the 70s with Toby, and no doubt what countless other military personnel have gone through, do you want to see some kind of not compensation, but, you know, admittance from those in charge that 
they were wrong to do what they done to to people like yourself back in the seventies. The relationships, the the damage that was caused, the the physical and mental health issues that were caused by something they refused to acknowledge, but more and more seems to be something they are coming to grips with this being a real phenomenon that they're going to have to acknowledge to the public. I got an apology. I got an apology in 2019. Um, I can't use his name, but I can say that somebody who was an active duty member uh, of the Air Force uh, and claimed to be uh, working with the Department of Defense uh, came out to my house, knocked on my door and asked if he could talk. And he said, I, I've read your book. And he said, I've done some, some minor investigating and you know, you, you, you're right. Um, the OSI was kind of a rogue organization back in the day. And um, you're not the only one. And they exceeded their authority um, and terribly mistreated some people. And he says, on behalf of the Department of Defense, uh, you know, I want you, want you to know that uh, we're sorry. We regret that this happened to you. And he said, had I been in the seat I'm in now, he said, that wouldn't have happened or someone would have been punished. Um, but I thought it was a sincere apology and it was uh, it was well received, well given, well received. So I, I thanked him very much. And he left, you know. 20-minute visit. And you feel that's enough for you to to not accept what happened, but is that as good you feel things are going to get in terms of any kind of admission of wrongdoing? Yeah, really there are, there are two things that were a huge help to me as far as processing this and being able to live with it. That was the apology was huge in my mind. Uh, it, that's not the kind of thing the government does. Um, and I, I was shocked, but I was, like I said, it, it was, uh, it was appropriate. And the second thing was I didn't, I didn't tell my story to anyone until 2018. And the reason for that is I had a job, I worked in the law and had I come out with the story while I was employed, uh, I would have lost my job. There's no doubt in my mind. So, but now that, I, now that I'm out with the story, I've had all these people, you know, over 4,000 people have emailed me and said, you know, this is what happened to me. And uh, that's kind of reassuring to me and that I had 4,000 people kind of validating my story through their own experiences and finding similarities in our experiences. And to know that I'm not unusual, uh, that my event wasn't a one-on, that this is happening uh, to a lot of people. And I think to a lot of people who have no memory of it, but I think it's happening to a lot of people. And like I say, it, it, it's good to know that I'm not the only one because that would be really tough to wrap my head around do you feel many of the folks who reach out to you just want to share their story with someone who's had a similar experience i do um 
it's it's crazy in that these stories that people send me all start off with this apology. They all start off with, please don't think I'm crazy. I know this is going to sound ridiculous. I swear mm -hmm. that I don't drink or do drugs. They always start out with first paragraph is apologetic and trying to say, yeah, I'm a legit person. And after they say that, they tell me amazing stories of things that happened to them. Um, things on a magnitude of what happened to Toby and I. So, yeah, it's been good to hear from these folks. I I don't get that volume of email, but the I've had a lot of letters. Letters, God, that's old school. I've had a lot of emails uh, and DMs from listeners who do very, very similar, where it's almost apologetic, but they, they just want to mention, because they listen to the podcast for X amount of years, um, something happened to them. And usually they also sign off with, I don't expect a reply. I'm just, you know, glad to share the story. Um, and I try my best to respond to everyone. And sometimes I've heard get, sometimes I read them in strange places or I'm, I'm just stopping somewhere for five minutes and I check my email and it happens to be there. Um, but yeah, it's a very similar story from, from my point of view, Terry, that people just want to share these things. And, and if you do ever want to reach out to Terry, myself, to anyone, they can always be in, you know, strictest confidence just to share a story whether it's a voice note or an email or a picture. And there's always people willing to listen. So like you say, I think it's far more common than, than people than people give credit for. And is there any story, Terry, for you that really stands out that you've had? Uh, maybe not one that's included within the book of the 30, but maybe there had are, even a profound impact on you? Yeah, there, there were a couple stories. Um, I started off with a lot of emails and I I tried to respond to anyone, everyone. If I didn't respond to somebody, I apologize that fell through the cracks, but I, uh, especially in 2018 and 2019, I'd get up every morning and have, you know, five to a dozen emails from people. And I, you know, I'd make a pot of coffee and I would read everyone and respond to everyone. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's a privilege that people choose to share something with you that they don't maybe don't even share with their wife or their husband or, or another human being at all. Um, but because I tell people this is what happened to me, they feel comfortable, I think, writing to me. And, uh, and that's a privilege. I'm, I'm, I was glad to, to, uh, glad to have done this. This has worked out well for me. Can you share one that you think or you remember had an impact on you? You know, there was a, matter of fact, I put it, it's the first story in my book, Incident at Devil's Den. I've got 25 or so uh, stories that I thought were, were really good. Uh, and there was this 68-year-old uh, woman from uh, Henderson, Nevada, near Las Vegas. And uh, she sent me an email and she told the story that uh, she and her husband used to drive from Las Vegas to Reno, Nevada. And I think I'm going from memory, I think it was like 240 miles or something uh, because they had friends and family living in Reno. So every time her husband was a medical doctor who worked a lot of hours so, but in, to compensate for that, once a month, he'd have a long, a long weekend 
and you know he and, and Olivia could get away and uh, go up and see their friends and have a nice nice weekend. Um, she told me that there was a place called um, it's now called the station. It's been renamed the station. Um, I forget the original name, but like a truck stop. They hmm. pull in, get gas, uh, they serve food, uh, you know, sold stuff. And they would stop there on every single trip. They would stop there and eat dinner and then resume their ride. And because uh, it was just about the halfway point. Yeah. And she said that, you know, she remembers it well. The people there all knew them. And uh, she ate. She admitted she ate a heavier meal than she normally eats. Um, I don't think she drank any alcohol. Well, if she did, it was one, but I don't think she drank anything at all. Her husband, who was driving, didn't drink at all. Um, and they got back in the car, and they started to drive north, headed towards Reno, Nevada. And they saw on the right side of the road this uh, crazy-looking store that was just lit up, like insanely lit up. Uh, it was a Christmas store. I don't know if they have such things over there. Um, they're not real common here, but there are places that sell only Christmas stuff and they sell it year round. So she said this was, you know, I forget the year, but it was in the sixties. And she said she'd never seen a store that sold um, Christmas stuff exclusively. And this place, she said, was wrapped in uh, a, a million lights, you know, like Christmas tree lights. Some were blinking, some were static. Um, and she recalled there was a neon uh, sign that said Christmas and a Christmas tree uh, above the store. Now, her husband remembers the store pretty much as she does, but he asserted, he's passed away now, but he asserted that uh, the building was made out of barn wood. It was a wooden structure. She remembers it being red brick. Um, and they compared notes about what they saw. And that was, that was the big discrepancy. Um, they had pulled off the road and parked right in front of this place. And she said, you know, we were just kind of mesmerized for it from, from it you know it was just it was just uh, really odd and she said to um, her husband she said why don't you go ahead and pull in a park and she said they're lit up they look like they're open and he said okay but uh, where do you want me to pull in to and there was no there was no egress there was no parking lot there was nothing but sand and sagebrush and in front of the store. So they thought that was odd and, but dismissed it and uh, went to uh, made, finished their trip to Reno, got there and were uncharacteristically tired. Both of them were just exhausted. Uh, they slept till she said 10 AM the following morning, which was unreal for them. They were, they were, uh, Friends were calling them on the phone, and that's that's what woke them. Otherwise, she said they might have slept till noon. She um, thought that that was very uncharacteristic. 
uh, and that was that they they felt out of sorts uh, yeah. that that following day, and I I I told Olivia I said, did you guys ever have the thought to independently, you know, each one go to a different room with a pen and paper, and write out what you saw and then compare notes, and she says no I wish we I wish we had thought of that. Um, and she said, this was just a crazy thing they saw, but she could not get it off of her mind. Uh, and her husband admitted the same thing. Uh, she had nightmares about this stupid store. Uh, they calculate in retrospect, looking back at it, the time they checked in, they lost about an hour of time. So we had a lot of conversations by phone. She went into great detail about what happened. And uh, I said, uh, Olivia, do you think that maybe what you saw was a flying saucer? Do you think, or something from outer space or another dimension or uh, something not of this world? And she says, oh, that's silly. And then she says, but I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, yeah, she said that uh, her husband had nightmares as well, but wouldn't admit to them. Hmm. Uh, this made such a big impact on them. He took off the following weekend uh, and they made the trip to find the store. Because if they found the store, they knew that they were, yeah, they just wanted to make sure it was there. Well, of course, it wasn't there. Never been there. And they, they spoke with a gentleman uh, who was with the Chamber of Commerce for the little community called Tunapa, uh, where this gas station restaurant was located, and ask, you know, when when did uh, Tunapa, you know, decide to let someone open a Christmas store on the highway? And it's like, I don't know what you're talking about, madam. I, you know, there is no Christmas. I've never heard of such a thing. So. Uh, yeah, so the, the store wasn't there. And, uh, you know, she's 68 years old. And she says, uh, you know, you don't know me from Adam, but I'm telling you, 68-year-old people don't make up fairy tales. Hmm. And she said, this, this really happened to me and my husband. And uh, I don't know what happened to us, but something significant happened to us. And... Uh, and we don't know what it was. And I asked her, I said, have you ever thought about seeing, you know, uh, someone qualified as a hypnotherapist who could maybe help retrieve those memories from you, for you? And uh, I've not done that. And she says, no, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. She said, I just want to let it lie. But she said, I, I'm, I'm glad that, uh, to tell you about it. And, uh, just came across as so genuine, so sincere. So yeah, her her story is number one in the book. Um, yeah, and and I noticed that as well. And it's it was interesting to lead with a story that isn't necessarily UFOs or aliens. There's no strange beings, but it was a really odd, unique perspective on missing time, potentially abduction phenomenon, and it's it's I get. It's an odd story for someone to make up, isn't it? That we saw a Christmas store. It was strange looking out in the middle of the desert. And that was it. 
you know, for them, there was there's, there's almost nothing you there's nothing odd about the story or sensational other than we think we saw an all year round Christmas store in the desert. But like you say, when you piece together the time of year, the store wasn't there. They've made that trip many times before. They they have the missing time. Something strange has clearly happened. Then the follow up with the nightmares. It's it's a very strange event and definitely fits within that that phenomenon bracket. You know, I, I could tell by the way she crafted her email that she was an educated woman. And when I spoke with her, she was very well spoken. Um, she has a bachelor's degree in something. I don't remember what it was. but uh, And her husband was a medical doctor. Um, and he was adamant. He says, we're not going to tell anybody that this happened. And uh, so, but he's passed away. So Olivia wanted to tell somebody. So, I wonder, Terry. Um, you mentioned. Well, I, I was asking before as well as well as this, your own story from childhood, and I don't think we quite got there. We got into the stories from the book. Yes, you know that's those are mentioned in Devil's Den, um, but not not in great detail, not at great length. Uh, I saw a classic flying saucer, a round disc. Uh, 1963, I was eight years old. I was in my backyard. We, we lived in the uh, city of St. Louis and we lived in uh, like older red brick row houses and we had a tiny little backyard. And uh, I had an uncle who gave me an adult bow and arrow set, like an archery set. Um, and I don't know why he would give an eight-year-old anything so lethal or why, you know, uh, I'd certainly not do that, give that to my children, but I was in the backyard. I was having a great time. I was shooting arrows into uh, a bale of hay and uh, lucky I didn't kill a neighbor, you know, uh, and, and I'm having fun and enjoying myself. It's a May day in May. I don't remember the day, but I remember it was May and it was beautiful, sunny day, and people were out, you know, hanging up laundry, cutting grass. Uh, there's traffic on the street. It's 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 busy, you know, like it like it is in a city. It's busy, and um, I'm putting an arrow in the notch of the bowstring. I'm looking down, and while I'm looking down, I saw this perfectly round circle of a shadow move over me, move across me. And I mean, instinctively, I looked up and 50 feet over my head, maybe, is this perfectly round metallic saucer. Of course, all I can see is the underside of it. And it was, it wobbled just a little bit. It wasn't absolutely stationary. And I was stunned and I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And uh, I remember I dropped my bow and arrow and I just couldn't drink it in enough with my eyes. And I'm looking it over and, you know, as an eight year old, I put together model plastic airplanes and the like. So I'm thinking, you know, where, where, where's the propulsion system? You know, where's an exhaust? Where is an engine? Why is it making any, why isn't, doesn't it make noise? 
and uh, wondering where it came from. Um, and I could see uh, no rivets, no tool marks, no, um, no markings of any kind. And uh, that made a huge impression on me. And I ran, I ran inside the house. I watched this thing until it shot off and it just kind of tilted at an angle to clear the power lines and shot off. But you know, what's curious is as soon as I saw this thing, um, the neighborhood changed and all these people that were walking and uh, having conversations and hanging up laundry and dogs and lawnmowers and all that noise um, was muffled. So for the time that I was looking at this thing, uh, the sound was, it was like I had my hands over both ears. It was muffled. Uh, and I don't understand that. I've not heard anyone else who had that kind of um, experience, but that, that's what I had. I ran into the house and told my mother, mom, mom, I just saw a flying saucer, you know, and there was no UFOs in the day. There were flying saucers and they're, you know, pretty big craze over here in the 1950s. So everyone knew what a flying saucer was. And, you know, my mother being a smart woman sits me down and says, now, I don't know what you saw, Terry, but you did not see a flying saucer. And I said, I did. And I mean, I, I was an honest kid. I, I, I didn't tell stories. I didn't lie. And she gives me a pencil and a piece of paper and says, draw me a picture of what you saw. And I drew a circle and handed it back to her because that's what I saw. And she's like, well, you know, your father's going to talk to you when he gets home. And uh, my dad came home and uh, was concerned. And he said, what's all this business about flying saucers? And I said, no, it wasn't plural, singular. I only saw one. And that annoyed him. Yeah. His, his grammar was terrible, and I would correct it now and then and make him really mad. Um, and he said, Terry, there's no such thing as flying saucers. And I want you to remember this. Nothing from the sky can ever hurt you. I said, okay. Well, I, I think he was wrong on both points. Um, but... Um, you know, I had two older sisters who teased me mercifully, I mean, just terribly about, about this. But uh, I was, I stood by my story because I know what I saw. But I learned pretty quickly that I don't talk, you shouldn't talk about it because if you do, it's just going to be an argument or whatever. So three years later, 1966, I'm now 11 years old. Um, I have an upstairs bedroom uh, facing the front of the street. And, uh, you know, I, I still go through the routine, you know, like, like all kids do, brush my teeth, get ready for bed, hop into bed. I know it was a Sunday night because the next day was going to be a school day. You know, my mom would still come in and tuck me in and, and uh, you know, tell me good night, give me a kiss, make sure that everything was good, and, uh, and then leave. Well, it was an extremely bitterly cold February night. 
And I mean, it was uh, uncharacteristically cold for St. Louis, um, you know, zero um, Fahrenheit. Um, and there was a, a bit of wind howling outside. And I went to sleep with not, without any problem at all. And sometime in the middle of the night, I didn't have a clock, so I don't have any reference of what time this happened. But I saw this crazy light show. I saw, you know, colored lights and bright flashes of bright white light through the drapes in front of in my window that faced the street. And I slung my legs over the edge of the bed and hopped up and I'm like, because I thought it was a fire engine. That's what I thought. You know, I'm trying to logically think, what is this thing? And I, I went to uh, the window and it was a drafty old house and we had heavy drapery over this window. So I pulled back the drapery and raised the, the blinds and here right outside the window, right outside my second story window is another flying saucer. Uh, only this time I could see the top of it. And there was a, a half a spherical dome like in the middle. Uh, I mean, just classic. And there were uh, around that dome in the center is where the lights were coming from. And I could have raised my window and stepped onto the top of it. And I watched it for a minute or two. And I didn't even watch it take off. I felt some kind of satisfaction from this. Hmm. And again, that's a little strange for an eight-year-old. I mean, I, but I didn't want to say, I didn't want to wake up my whole family and say, there's another flying saucer here. Cause you know, that wouldn't have gone over real well. So I, I at breakfast the next day, I asked, Hey, did anybody see the fire truck last night? Uh, nope. Didn't see a thing. Didn't hear a thing. So, uh, and I, I wasn't going to tell them what I saw. But, you know, I felt um, this sounds a little strange, maybe pompous. I don't mean it to, but I felt like they came back to see me. Mm -hmm. I And that, that, you know, it wasn't just an accident. They didn't make a wrong turn at Albuquerque or something. They came back with the intention of seeing me for whatever reason. I have no idea what, what their agenda was, but... Uh, I know this, it was, it was very exciting. It was, um, it was just very cool for an 11 year old. Great, marvelous thing. Can I ask, do you remember the dome? If it was transparent, translucent, or was it, you know, solid? Could you not see through the dome in any way? I could not see the, through the dome in any way. And I couldn't see any fixtures where the lights came from. I just okay. saw flashing lights emitted from this this dome in the middle of the hemisphere in the, or in the middle of the saucer, uh, dome shaped. Uh, but when the lights weren't flashing, it looked like it was solid metal. Mm. So there, I didn't see windows or portals. Or uh, again, I looked for an exhaust. I, I and there was no noise. Um, and I, you know, so I could have a free hand. I tucked that that drapery 
into the uh, up at the top where the where the pole is to hang the drapery. I stuck the drapery and tucked it in there so I could watch without having to hold all the stuff to the side. And then the next morning when I woke up, I, I didn't remember it right away. And I got up and thought, you know, a school day. And then I saw the drapery. And then it all came flooding back. And I said, that's, that happened. And it, it wasn't a dream. That happened. I got out of the bed and, you know, pulled back the drapes for some good reason. Uh, so, yeah. Do, that you, was my... do you believe those, those two incidents seeing saucers are in any way related to what happened in 1977 when you see the triangle? You know, I think so. I think so. You know, when we when I first saw the triangle, I was confused. I was thinking, you know, well, you know, this is a triangle, great big triangle. It's not a circle. I mean, pardon me, it's not a disc, you know. And I associated disc with, you know, it's 11 years later. Uh, and I had 11 years of absolutely seeing nothing crazy or no odd events of any kind. And uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's a very good question. I, I don't know. I wish I knew. That is all for this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. Apple and Spotify do make a huge difference to the algorithm. If you're checking the show on YouTube, please don't forget to like and leave a comment on here as well. Any sharing you do is very much appreciated on any social media platform. And finally, you can listen to shows ad-free and sponsor-free in their glorious full versions by subscribing for less than the price of a coffee on Apple, Spotify, just search That UFO Podcast Premium, YouTube, you can sign up and be a member, or you can do that through patreon.com. Thank you very much for listening, folks. It wasn't a tic-tac and not